Hello, Marvelites. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Marvel. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Marvel's Agent M, and I'm joined by... Marvel.com editor Ben Morse, and for the fifth time this year, let's see, Golden Age, 60s, 70s, 80s, and yeah, 90s, we're uh, celebrating our fifth Marvel 75th anniversary podcast with one of our most popular, requested, and now famous guests, uh, Marvel historian Peter Sanderson. Sir, hello. Thank you for making time with us. Now that you're a TV star. Oh well, there's so many demands on my time now. But <laughs> I, I don't forget my old friends. We appreciate it. I, you know, hopefully this played some small role in uh, in vaunting you to the uh, world of the silver, not silver screen yet. It's movies next. Yeah, I mean, you you got to be in, in the films, in the pictures, Ob- obviously. No. Well, I figure as long as the Avengers think Coulson is dead, they need a replacement. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Somebody who would be a big comics fan who collect Captain America trading cards. Yeah. So. Fit the bill. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Fit the bill. So today we are talking about the 1990s, uh, a very special time for Ryan and myself, as this is when we started reading comics. Um, and thank you for making me feel so. <laughs> <old today>. <laughs> <laughs> But you have the inside track, what was actually going on, whereas we were on the outside looking in, you were on the inside, able to kind of Although, because that. this is one of the dark times in Marvel history, yeah. I wasn't on the inside all the way Well, we'll through. get to that. That's, that's where we'll end today. Yes. <laughs> but when we started, you were at Marvel. Yes. Uh, what, what were you doing at Marvel going into the 90s? Um, going into the 90s, I'd been working on the v- initial sub- several versions of the Marvel Universe Handbook. Mm -hmm. I was working on Marvel Saga, which was telling the history of what happened in the Marvel comics from FF1 onward. Mm -hmm. And, gee, I wish they'd bring that back. (laughs) And I uh, I was working on Wolverine Saga, which was a history of Wolverine in four issues. Mm -hmm. And in the early 90s, I became the first Marvel archivist, even though um, even though it was sort of distressing because Mark Greenwald hired me to be Marvel archivist to mm-hmm. be continuity, in-house continuity expert to take care of the bound volume room but apparently in the, the paperwork decided that uh, according to the paperwork I was an administrative assistant so mm. when Secretary's Day came around yeah. I would be invited to have lunch with the other secretaries and I'm thinking wow oh, this isn't really right okay. you got but a nice anyway. lunch out of it though once a year yeah <laughs> so it's um so that's what I was doing right. in the early '90s. I wanted to I wanted to start, and Ryan, you can uh, you, I know you have your own questions, but I wanted to start uh, as we have a lot of times talking about kind of the prominent creators because with the '90s, it's a very interesting time for creators because this is where, especially at the beginning of the '90s, um, the artists really start becoming the stars. Yes. Um, and in particular, we had Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, Mark Silvestri, uh, Wills Portacio. Jim Valentino, who would become huge stars at Marvel and then would end up going off to form Image. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I basically just introduced them, but what are, what are kind of your memories of these guys, how they came in, where they made their mark? How are they different from some of the artists of previous generations? I'd say they were different in that what we saw was a new style coming in mm-hmm. of artwork that was um, these guys that they these guys they, a lot of their work looked different very different from anything that we'd seen at Marvel before. This was a testimony to Marvel's ability to attract new blood, which by the way was going to come to an end in the 90s. <laughs> but this is sort of the last big wave mm-hmm. in the. Tw- 
20th century of new blood at Marvel. Uh, these guys were, they were very much in, they influenced by people like Jack Kirby, mm -hmm. for example. But on the other hand, they were also very influenced by anime and manga. Mm -hmm. And so this was a very different look than we'd, than we'd seen in terms of how they drew figures, the kind of musculature, the kind of action poses, how they laid out stories. For now you'd have like, whereas say in the old days, you know, you'd reserve a, a, a full page shot for something like Spider-Man and that Ditko story lifting off mm. the, all that machinery off his back. Now it'd be like, you'll use a full page to introduce the cool new character. Yeah, right. <laughs> and um, let's, you know, you look, you look at these guys and they, they have certain things in common even though they, they're distinct from e each other, but they, they seize the imagination of the readership and this hit, mm -hmm. these guys hit at the time of the big speculator boom, which I'm sure we'll get into, but yes. since these guys were now, f were rapidly became fan favorite artists, if they, if you had a new series launched with one of these guys attached, like Spider, the new Spider-Man number one with Todd McFarlane, or X-Force number one with Rob Liefeld, or the new X-Men number one with Jim Lee, or even Guardians of the Galaxy number mm -hmm. one with mm -hmm. Jim Valentino, with the original Guardians, not the guys from the movie. Um, you know, these were going to be huge sellers, and, and in some cases, huge sellers meant selling million copies, right. or a couple of million copies. This is was sort of, this sort of, sales of that big had not been seen since the 40s. Mm -hmm. And of course now, you know, a top selling comic sells, you know, you know if, if you hit 100,000, you're lucky it's these big, yeah. days. What was, what was the office like as we were hitting these crazy milestones? Because it was like one million copies and then the next month something else would debut. At, I don't, what was it? X-Force, then Spider-Man, then X-Men, something like, it was some order well, like that, and it was just, time. yeah, but it was one after the other, and it just got exponentially bigger. I'm not sure that it really changed the atmosphere in the office, because, you know, this might mean that the people who, uh, who were getting royalties off the books were making tons of money, but those guys t tended not to be in the new, th mm. you know, they weren't in New York, they weren't on staff, they, you know, you didn't see them. We in editorial weren't seeing any of this, <laughs> this money. I will say that it, the 80s is when I noticed that this is when, when the royalty system first came in, and so this was when I noticed that, I think it was at a, a, a Halloween party that John Byrne held, mm -hmm. at which uh, the theme was, every year he had a theme for his Halloween party, and this one was formal dress, <laughs> and seeing everybody show up in tuxedos and evening gowns, and I thought, this is a sign that we're actually starting to make a real living <laughs> <laughs> off comics. You know, the comics industry is changing to that extent. But, you know, I didn't see signs of wealth at the offices. We did used to have really good Christmas parties. <laughs> <laughs> really Tell me more. Oh, no, uh, this was a, the, the spectacular. Well, th I didn't appreciate this enough at the time. For a while, they were at the Players Club, which is this, mm. which was this old institution for act, the acting profession on Gramercy Park. And I didn't appreciate that enough at the time. <coughs> but then, then we moved to the Grand Hyatt and mm. big parties and hired bands and people dressing up. And, it was, and gee, that was great. <laughs> but it didn't last. Um, you know, but I think that, you know, I suppose that the, if, if there's a way that it changed changed the office is the fact that Marvel was putting out so much material right. at this point that they were, you know, they were, 
things were so, people were buying so many comics, Marvel was just feeding them more and more and more so that you had, uh, as probably not just the regular books and, you know, more and more X-Men spinoffs and, you know, a new Spider-Man spinoff with Todd McFarlane, but also, you know, miniseries galore, uh, event comics. This is the age of Jim Starlin's big event series that, uh, of course, you know, the progenitors of what's coming in the event in the Avengers movie. Um, we've got, this is, and as we'll probably talk about later, we're, we're having additional lines of comics being started, you know, which didn't last, mm. but again, it's like trying to, you know, producing all this material. And, you know, so Bryce was probably busier than ever. Yeah. You mentioned the X-Men line expanding, and this was a, I mean, the X-Men basically go hand in hand with the 90s. They were the breakout hit of the 80s, and then by the time they got to the 90s, it was just immense. Um, it was a very, very transitional period for X-Men because Chris Claremont left the book after over a decade. Uh, 16 years. Wow. So after 16 years. Right. Chris Scripting every single yeah. issue. I think one might have been plotted, was plotted by Bill Mantlo, but uh, <laughs> no, he scripted every single one. So Claremont leaves. You have guys like Liefeld and Lee who are almost temporarily running the show, and then they left shortly thereafter to form Image. But at the same time, like you said, the X-Men line, which at one point was just Uncanny X-Men, has now expanded to include... X-Men, X-Force, X-Factor, Excalibur, Cable, and all the various miniseries. Uh, what was going on as far as the X-Men books, the mindset, and some of the talent who came in and out of that? Well, I think one of the major things to consider about the X-Men in this period is that when the X-Men, when the new X-Men started in the 70s, you know, Len Wein and Dave Cockrum created the book, but Len left, you know, let Chris script the, the first two issues of the, of the regular monthly series, and then it was Chris's baby from then on. Um, X-Men was really a very personal book for Chris. Now, people have different tastes in comics, but I tend to think that the best comics tend to reflect the personality of a particular creator or two. So whether it's Frank Miller's Daredevil, or Walt Simonson's Thor, or Peter David's Hulk, or or the Chris Claremont's X-Men, and you know he he had partnerships with various artists, which which were you know for Claremont and Byrne together, and you got and the whole the sum is greater than the you know the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. But uh, and Chris was good at actually recruiting artists to work with with who would, who would perform strong visuals and also help plot the stories, choreograph the fight scenes and so forth. But um, as the X-Men line began to expand, I mean, first there was the New Mutants and Chris was writing that, but as it got bigger and bigger, you know, Louise Simonson, who had been editing the X-Men, ended up writing the New Mutants and taking over X-Factor. Right. And she and Chris were very simpatico, they were friends, they thought alike. Uh, Louise tended to think of the new X-Men as Chris's characters, so she, he would he could take the he would take the lead. It was sort of a it was so, you know, the, the first big X-Men crossover, which was the Mutant Massacre in the mid '80s. That was basically you know, Chris coming up with this idea and Louise wanting to get in on it and doing it, and, and 
New Mutants, but also in Power Pack, which he was writing, and then Walt Simonson while he joined mm-hmm. it. So it was basically buddies getting together yeah, right. and co-plotting this. Now, however, because the X-Men was getting so popular, there were g- there's more demand than Chris himself could meet. You know, X-Factor started out as a book written by Bob Layton. It was... Uh, um, yeah, um, Chris was sort of, sort of uh, not pleased when uh, Barry Windsor Smith did that origin for Wolverine's the uh, Weapon X sequence in mm. Marvel Comics Presents. Um, Chris was not happy about X Factor when it first started before mm. Louise t- became the writer just in just a few issues. Uh, but you know, he, Chris started out with the regular Wolverine series, but he had to let that one go. So it's like the X Men was becoming less and less a the expression of Chris's creative personality and becoming more of a book that pretty much anybody at Marvel could write one of the spin-offs of. And the turning point was really when the the uh, Chris and Jim Lee collaboration, because at this point, as you say, artists are becoming the stars mm-hmm. in this age where books are selling these enormous numbers numbers of copies. And my understanding is that with X-Men, I mean, first Chris and Jim worked together on Uncanny X-Men, and then they launched this new X-Men series to take advantage of, you know, the huge numbers that that new books could get. And my impression is, you know, just as Chris and John Byrne would have disagreements, Chris and Jim Lee were pulling in different directions. And Bob Harris at that point was siding with Jim Lee mm-hmm. and Chris decided, okay, this is the time to go. You know, it's been 16 years. Yeah. Although I think he would have wanted to keep on going. Sure. But, and, after, and then, you know, in the short run, Jim Lee becoming the dominant force on X-Men with other people doing the scripting, or Rob Liefeld taking over the New Mutants from mm-hmm. Louise Simonson, and that turning into X-Force. In the short term, these were good decisions because those, those books were selling huge numbers of copies, but when these guys took off and founded Image, mm-hmm. maybe it didn't make as much sense anymore. But from that point on, right through the present, the X-Men is a book that, you know, the characters are still strong. It's a still strong concept. It's still a tremendous seller for Mar- Marvel. It's this... The X-Men books are a universe within the Marvel Universe, but even so, it no longer reflects one real, one particular creative personality. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the X-Men itself, the main title, has had as strong a creative personality as Chris on it, except for the period when Grant Morrison was doing mm-hmm. it and taking it in a brand new direction mm-hmm. that pretty much lasted as long as he was on the book. Yeah. But it's like, so it was an edit of an era for the X-Men, even as the X-Men be- became more and more commercially successful. I think it's really interesting, because it's probably only a two-year period where these guys, you know, Rob's on the book from, what, yeah. New Mutants 87, and he leaves X-Force... Before issue 10, yeah. Yeah, before yeah. 10. Uh, Jim's on a bunch of Uncanny, maybe a little bit more, but, like, it's a it's a flash. It's a gigantic flash, and I think that really says a lot about the time period and how big these guys got and what that meant for the rest of the... And it also, also tells you about, you know, fads because it's like some of these guys from who went on Founded Image have been more successful than others. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the big hits at Image 
were you know, huge at first and then faded. And ImageNow is a very different company than it was when it was started. You know, it's uh, when Image started, there was a lot of, there was a lot of report, there was a lot of reporting about this in the press, in the mainstream press at the time, which was sort of a surprise. But this is when the mainstream press is, it's beginning to sink in, in the mainstream press and in the mainstream business world, as we shall see, mm -hmm. that Marvel is a particular, is a potentially huge source of profit. And mm -hmm. so the business sections of newspapers were paying attention when these image guys left en masse. Now, I was thinking about this the other night and thinking, you know, in a way, it isn't all that different from, you know, in the mid-80s when people who were getting sort of fed up with Jim Shooter's micromanagement style went over to D.C., like sure. John Byrne and Frank Miller and where would Superman and Batman be today without what those Byrne and Miller did in the mid-'80s at, at D.C. But, you know, this was, but the, the press was paying more attention at that point. You know, the fact that comics would be, could sell millions of copies was making an impression and that these were the guys who had been responsible for a lot of that. And, and of course, they left. It was seven people leaving on mass to form a company mm -hmm. that was regarded a, at first as being, you know, instead of the big two comic companies, we yeah, had the big three. Soup, and that, that, which didn't last for, in terms of superhero comics with Image. But at the time, you know, that's another thing. You say it was like two years that these guys were were dominating Marvel, but it's like at the time when you're in it, in the middle of it, it seems sure. like, gee, this is going to go on forever, yeah. as far as we can tell. Kind of almost a 180. One of the other books you mentioned was um, Peter David's Hulk. Yeah. And that was always an interesting book to me in terms of the age it came out of because whereas you had a lot of the X-Men stuff, highly commercial, uh, artists are the star, et cetera, et cetera, Hulk was a book where it felt a little bit more like what you were saying with Claremont's X-Men, where it was a very personal vision. Peter David mm -hmm. was on that book for years. Some great artists who came in and out. Dale Keown and Gary Frank. And, and McFarlane. Yeah, and Todd McFarlane. But it was really Peter David's vision. And, and it, it's one of the most solid runs of the late 80s, early 90s. And it's also a completely different Hulk than what most people are used to. It was really the first time he portrayed that smart Hulk. So I guess my, my question was, in a company where they're skewing so heavily towards this kind of more commercialization, not always most character-heavy stuff, how did a book like Peter David's Hulk kind of coexist within that, where he's doing some really, you know, long-term planning, strong character work that almost harkens back to a different period? What you've got with Peter David's Hulk, it, he wasn't on it as long as Chris was on the X-Men, mm -hmm. but it's still he was on he was on it for a decade. Sure, and it's sort of like spanning different eras in Marvel and different mindsets at Marvel, so that when Peter started on the Hulk, it was it was. 80s, and the Hulk was, even though it's, you know, it's one of Marvel's signature characters, the book was not selling that well, and Shooter, who was, as, a, as I said, who tended to micromanage things that he wasn't interested in, mm -hmm. sort of not paying that much attention to it, and that's sort of how innovative things could get really get done at Marvel in that period, if, if it's sort of under the radar, and so... Peter was taking a book that wasn't selling that big, and people weren't paying that much attention, and so that gave him a, a free hand. And again, there was sort of, in the 80s, with examples like Walt on Thor and Chris on X-Men, there was a tendency to give writers more independence, 
on, on coming up with a vision for their book that they would follow in that book. Now, they, I've heard some of the, some of the more recent uh, Marvel people talk about now how now things are different because it's much more collaborative that you have the editors and the, and the lead writers going off to these retreats and planning these big storylines that'll last a year or two and doing it way in advance. But, yep. but then, you know, uh, writers could get, get their own, get a book and stay on it, you know, as long as they wanted to, mm -hmm. as long as mm -hmm. it continued to sell and pursue their own vision. And in Peter's case, I think one of his guiding principles was that he did not want to do the classic Hulk. He did right. not want to do the Hulk smash type of Hulk. And so he came up with all these different variations in the course of those 10 years on, you know, starting out with the, gr with the gray Hulk, Hulk who's more like a thug mm -hmm. and, uh, and turning that into Mr. Fix-It, yep. the, the uh, enforcer for the gangsters out in Las Vegas, and eventually coming up with the smart green Hulk. Right. And Peter's run did not really come to an end until we get to the 90s, and then there's sort of pressure on him to start doing the right. classic mm -hmm. Hulk again. Yeah. And he does not want to do that. He makes it clear in interview after interview. I, I, do, I will leave the book if I have to, rather than do the Hulk smash type of Hulk, and eventually, eventually he did. But it is, and in a way, this is inevitable. The surprise to me really is that he was able to do these variations on the Hulk for as long as he did for a full decade. Because my feeling is that with the classic characters, both at Marvel and DC, no matter how far you stretch them away out of shape from from where they started, they're always going to return. Sure. This is my elastic band yeah, theory elastic. of comic book characters, they will always return to the yeah. original concept. And uh, sometimes simply because it's sort of a generational shift in editors and writers, and they want to go back to what they were reading when they were kids. Yeah. And so, and we will see this is a factor in the Spider-Clone saga. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was a never, but still it stands out as one of the best periods in the Hulk's history. And again, it is because it is the expression of a personal vision. Um, so we also we need to talk about Spider-Man. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, before we even get to yeah. the to the Spider-Clone stuff, I mean, McFarlane such a huge driving force on that book. But you have the cartoon, which is what helped the X-Men. But you had the Spider-Man cartoon. Um, what was you know, what do you what do you see as the reason that Spider-Man became so big at that point in time? I think it's I think it's basically that Spider-Man has always been such a strong character. He has been the he has been the signature character of Marvel Comics since the 60s. Mm -hmm. And as the sales grew for these book books in the 90s, when we got to the boom, of course he would benefit. I remember Jim Salakup who was editor of Spider-Man at the start of the 90s and was editor of Spider-Man for years and years and years being sort of surprised when there was a, um, I think there was like a, one of the crossover events involving the X-Men and he found out from his fan mail back when there was fan mail <laughs> that um, there were people who were reading the Spider-Man books and were not reading the X-Men books that it was a, that there was to some extent a separate audience um, it's, it's just that it's a great character and, and when the sales swelled, swelled to such great, great heights, Spider-Man benefited 
from it as much as the X-Men did. These were the two top sellers. And it's not just that the Spider-Man books were popular, but again, if we get into the alternative lines uh, of comics during this period, you know, what is the what is the what was the the standout book on the Marvel 2099 line? What? Spider-Man 2099, and that's really the only character who has survived from that line. Or the MC2 line, it was Spider-Girl, and again, the only real character who has really survived from that from that line of comics. It's like even these variations on Spider-Man, the Spider-Man content is just so strong that even these variations sold big. And the combination of McFarlane, who in his own way, again, he was one of these new artists, these new influencers who seized the imagination of the public at that time, but also in a way you could see that McFarlane was actually redefining for the 1990s the kind of thing that Ditko was doing in the 60s. Because once again, Spider-Man was sort of moving like a bug mm -hmm. through the, uh, uh, across walls. And uh, he wasn't drawing it like Ditko did, but it still came across as the same effect, that same sort of weird half person, mm. half, half spidery look. And he, he, he managed to come up with a way to make it work in the 90s. And, and no wonder it was huge. Also, I think we got to give credit to Eric Larson, who is, you know, yeah. also doing yeah. a bunch yeah. of Spider-Man yeah. stuff yeah. in sure. in that time period. And I just, I, you know, like the two of them, for me, that was like that was what got me excited about Spider-Man. I wasn't a huge Spider-Man reader before that. I think Eric was doing great stuff. Well, let's uh, let's sets it up. Let's talk about yeah. the Spider Clone. So, for for our newer <laughs> listeners who were not around during this time, basically. I want to say around 93, 94, maybe mm -hmm. a little earlier. Uh, this is McFarlane, Larson are gone, some different stuff's going on. Um, an old plot thread from the 70s is reintroduced where he's, there was a clone of Spider-Man. Yes. Um, and, you know, it was kind of a one-and-done story. It had been referenced once or twice since then, but for the most part left alone. But it's reintroduced in a big way where Spider-Man's clone, presumed dead, returns, and it kicked off I think a good two years, if not more, of stories uh, kind of going back and forth. There were a lot of revelations. It seemed like there were a lot of false finishes as far as is the clone the real Spider-Man, which he became Spider-Man for a little while. Uh, eventually, it all, with your theory of elasticity, it, uh, it went back to normal. But there was a good long period known as the Clone Saga where Spider-Man was very different from the Spider-Man we were used to. Uh, I think you, you we were kind of touching on it earlier, but what were kind of some of the origins of where this story came from and why do you think ultimately it just seemed to kind of go in so many different directions before ultimately going back to the way it was before? My understanding is that there was a certain amount of pressure at that time for Marvel to do something that would compete with, get the same sort of sales as the death, uh, death in quotes of Superman mm -hmm. over DC in this period. And so what can we do that's big and revolutionary and will upset people's expectations with Spider-Man? And I believe it was Terry Kavanaugh who came up with the idea of the Clone Saga. Mm -hmm. This referred back to a story that from the 70s, as you said, the, the end of the first sto story, line, story arc with the Jackal, mm -hmm. who was the supervillain geneticist who created a clone of Spider-Man. And Spider-Man and the clone fight, there's an explosion, and one of them is dead, and the survivor thinks, wait a minute, am I the clone or am I the real Spider-Man? And it, he eventually proves to himself, 
so he thinks, that he's the real mm -hmm. Spider-Man, it's the clone that's dead. Well, yeah, apparently, now, you know, apparently when Terry Kavanaugh brought this up at a editorial writer and writers meeting, uh, it was not, you know, people didn't like the idea and they really should have tr trusted their first instincts, <laughs> but no. But then you see what happened was that for a long time, there has been a difference of opinion. You know, it was also in the 80s that Peter Parker got married yep. to Mary Jane, which seems to have been Stan's idea. And it was because it happened in the comic strip and it happened in the comic book simultaneously. But there was a school of thought that Spider-Man should always be presented as really young. Maybe not a teenager, but maybe he should like be a permanent grad student that he should never get married, that the readership is really young and they don't want to read about somebody who's married because married or who has, you know, got a full-time job because that they don't want to read about adults. <laughs> now, may, now, maybe this is sort of mistaken because like when I, in the 60s when I started reading Marvel Comics, I was considered too old to be reading Marvel Comics because I was in high school. You <laughs> should have outgrown them. Now it's like, <laughs> now what, the average... Now the age is, what, 20 to 40 yeah. for the most of the audience? Yeah. So I sort of wonder about do they really want, have to read about a Spider-Man who's like 20. But, it's, um, but anyway, there's a school of thought that the marriage should not have happened, mm -hmm. that Spider-Man should never have, got, never have been, you know, you shouldn't like make him a teacher or something. You shouldn't make him seem like an adult. You should make him seem like he's still in his, permanently in his student days. Of course, you could also say this sort of contrast with what Marvel was about, which was, you know, Stan moving him from high school into college. And, and it's, again, Stan was on the side of him getting married. Mm. But, you know, and also for these, these characters, now Sarah's been around for 50 years. I mean, yeah. you, you know, you can't, if he was aging in real time, he'd be retiring now. Right. Um, so it's because uh, he started when he's 15 and now he's, yeah. he's 65. So the writers and editors reali realized that if they did this, if they revealed that the Spider-Man since that story that Jerry Conway had done and Archie Goodwin had, those stories Jerry Conway and Archie Goodwin had done back in the 70s, if the one we'd been reading about ever since then was a clone, mm. and it was the clone that married Mary Jane, then we could write the clone out and have the original Spider-Man come back mm -hmm. and take over who wouldn't be married mm -hmm. and who wouldn't have graduated from grad school, anything like that, and we could do Spider-Man right, yeah. quote unquote. So the idea is they bring in this character Ben Riley, who calls himself Ben Riley, and at first we think he's the clone, and then it turns out that it looks like Ben is actually the original Peter Parker, and the person we think is, uh, thought was Peter Parker was the clone. Mm. And the idea is we are going that Peter married to Mary Jane, they're expecting a baby. We're going to move them all the way to the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. so we will never see them again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which also seems like a sort of odd way to think of the Pacific Northwest now <laughs> that so much of the comics industry is out there. That's true. But um, <laughs> and Ben will take over the role of Spider-Man. Well, this went on for two years, as you say, because it sold big because mm. people wanted to find out what's going to happen next, and of course. The collector's item, you know, mentality is that, oh, well, this is going to be worth, this issue is going to be worth something. We have to find out what's going to happen, and this issue is going to be worth something someday because right. this is the 
you know, the big transition between the Spider-Man. On the other hand, I think what, I think comics companies tend to think that if a book sells well, that means that everybody likes it, and doesn't necessarily, no, it means that they think it might be worth something and they don't want to miss out on what's going to happen, but that does not mean they approve of what's happening. Hmm. I mean, I could see this with reactions to the original Secret Wars, and you saw it with the Clone Saga. And I think this also illuminates one of the differences between Marvel and DC. Because starting with Crisis on Infinite Earths in the 80s, DC started rebooting its characters, starting series over from scratch, and there was a minority of readers who didn't like the old stuff, old books being dumped from continuity, but most people went along with it. You can't do that at Marvel. One of Marvel's strengths is its continuity, its history, that the Stan and Jack and the Stan and Steve Ditko stories are still part of the ongoing continuity. Now, maybe at some point this will change in the future, but it's been going for 75 years now, mm -hmm. and it's worked really well. Readers did not, you know, all these, these writers and editors on Spider-Man who were putting together the Clone Saga, they grew up reading Spider-Man in the 60s. They don't mind if, if they say that the guy, the, that Ben Riley is the original Spider-Man. It's their Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. It's the one they grew up reading. But for most of the readership in the 90s, you're telling them that the Spider-Man they've been reading for 20 years is a fake, and we're getting rid of him. Yeah. And those stories somehow don't count. You know, and even when DC reboots a character like New 52, you know, it's still Clark Kent Kal-El as Superman. Mm -hmm. It's not a new guy. So it's like, readers rebelled. Readers did not like this. And so at first you get, because the Clone Saga is selling so well, you get all these attempts to extend it, to come up with new stories, new elaborations on it, to keep this, keep the sales going. And that, but then it gets to the point where, and, and apparently some of the, some of the writers and editors at Marvel started to rebel against this too. They didn't like the idea of, of having to write Ben as Spider-Man. They mm -hmm. liked the, like the one that they've been writing for like all these years, and uh, and so then you get a. You know, then you get a shift, and the editors and writers are coming, trying to come up with ways to undo what they've spent the last year or so doing. And they were consulting people for ideas, even consulting me. There's a, <laughs> there's, there's a one-shot book, something yeah. like a 101 Ways to, to Resolve the Spider-Man Spider Saga, yeah. and I'm even a character in it. <laughs> there you go. That's, uh, because they were asking my advice, too. And eventually they came... You know, and eventually they put everything back. They killed off Ben. They said, no, Ben Riley's the clone after all. They yep. killed him off. Peter Parker came back as, as Spider-Man. Uh, Mary Jane had a miscarriage, so P yeah. Peter wouldn't be a parent. This is when they brought Norman Osborn back from the dead, and that was, there was a lot of resistance to that, too, from the, in some quarters, because it was thought that the death of Norman for sort of expiating the death of Gwen mm -hmm. was a classic story, and we shouldn't undo that. But that was in the days when... Actually, there were deaths in DC and Marvel Comics that were meant to be real. Yeah. And that, too, now seems sort of quaint. So Norman came back, and that's led to all sorts of other stuff, and prob probably more to it, and probably contributed towards Norman, to the Osmond slash the Green Goblin, becoming you know, sort of the dominant Spider-Man villain mm -hmm. at, that he's been in the movies and, and even on stage mm -hmm. since then. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, and, but there are still people who like the Clone Saga. That's there true. are people who are fond of it. I mean, they have people who love Ben Riley. People who love Ben Riley, and you can, see if you uh, interview Danny Fingeroth, he will still mount a full, full-blown defense of that. <laughs> he was one of the editors, writers working on it. Um, also, in, ta- in talking about crossovers, uh, the big one for the X-Men, I think, you know, most people will look at the uh, Age of Apocalypse mm. as being that hallmark event, and you know, it, it didn't last as long as the Clone Saga, but it seemed bigger. It was it was vast. What was how did that come together, and and what did that mean for the X Men books in the nineties? Oh, I wasn't in on editorial sessions plotting that out. I thought it was a good idea, certainly, um, but it was it was the biggest of many events that were going. On. You see, Secret Wars had launched and Crisis over DC, but Secret Wars at Marvel and Secret Wars 2 had launched the idea of the event comic, the maxi-series, that crosses over into all these other series. And again, like I said, uh, the Mutant Massacre and X-Men was sort of the progenitor of the X-Men-related crossover book events. And again, these things sold well, and and these things came along at the time when the sales were booming, as they were, and so you have a whole series of these cro- crossover events in, in Marvel books, especially in the X titles. So you have, but so before you got to uh, Age of Apocalypse, you had Executioner's Song, and the greatest Extinction crossover of, of all time, and ex- Extinction <laughs> Agenda, and um, Fatal Attractions, and things. And you know, and it was like one every year. It was it was sort of a duty in the X Men office to come up with one of these things. And I, like I said, I think the ones that have had even more impact have been the ones that St- Jim Starlin was doing. You mm-hmm. know, because you had in the 90s, that's when you get the Thanos quest, and then the Infinity Gauntlet, and then the Infinity War, and then the Infinity Crusade, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and these made and these. You know, what univer- literally universe-spanning events evolving like virtually every Marvel hero, and it's uh, and with Thanos usually turning up at the center of these yeah. things, and again, it's uh, had such a big impact that even though a lot of the creators from the 80s and 90s, you know, don't work at Marvel that much anymore, if at all, it's like Starlin keeps coming back, mm-hmm. and and now Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet. Um, major forces in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, you know, but, again, it's, um, and, uh, of course, things like execution, uh, like Age of Apocalypse, Age of Apocalypse, um, you know, it's probably one of the factors that's going to, uh, reason why the next X-Men movie is going to be about Apocalypse. It's like, it's, um, in a way, Age of Apocalypse is actually so, I think, I think it's also sort of like, um, taking, Oh, there was you know, one of the crossovers in X-Men was Days of Future Pre- Present. And uh, it was um, Age of Apocalypse is, like taking, is, is, in a way, taking Days of Future Past even further. Again, this alternate reality where, uh, this dysfunctional alternate reality where, where it seems like um, everybody is doomed unless mm-hmm. we can undo this. And, but this time instead of just a two-parter it stretches over this whole family of X-Men books and the, the really the really inventive thing about it was that all 
commercially was that all the X-Men books were supposedly canceled <coughs> while it was running and you had all these new series taking their place mm. that was set in the age of apocalypse. In contrast to you know, the Spider-Clone saga and... Oh, oh, but that's also an example okay. of the X-Men now becoming sort of a team effort rather than the expression of one right. person because, you know, by that time, Chris was no longer anywhere near the X-Men. Yeah. And it's like you have all these different people, all these people collaborating on this. And again, it, so you have a big, impressive event. But again, it's not like a... It doesn't have, like, personal... It doesn't have personal themes the way... The X-Men books would have would have had when Chris was doing them. So, contrast to the Clone Saga, the Age of Apocalypse, to Infinity Gauntlet, all of these big event stories, you have this four-issue limited series, Marvels, mm -hmm. uh, fully painted by Alex Ross in his first major superhero work, written by Kurt Busiek. Just this kind of very different. Again, the same way Peter David's Hulk was different from a lot of the books, this was different from a lot of the limited series going on. You know, retelling the history of Marvel from the Golden Age up into the Silver Age. Um, it was such a different project, and it was so, I feel like it was universally well-received. I've never heard of anyone who doesn't like Marvels. How did this book come to be uh, when it was so different from anything else that was going on at the time? Well, again, I think it's a result of, this is something you'd, be, you'd be better off asking Kurt, mm -hmm. of course. I have. <laughs> so I wanted, yeah. But uh, because I was just sort of like sitting there and applauding when it came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was. Um, I guess that's a better question. What, what was what was kind of your take on it? Because we, we we did speak to Kurt. Again, again, it's like it's like Marvel is still was putting out so much material that there's still a lot of room to experiment. Mm -hmm. And you know the, you know you had the final days of Epic in comics in the 90s but again you had all these alternative lines of comics being done and so this seems to be another sort of ex this was another experiment now Kurt you know he's such a big name in comics now mm -hmm. but you know this is one of the odd things about when you look back and you see you know people who weren't really taken seriously at first and who have since became big stars and uh, and Kurt's one of them Kurt used to work in the direct sales department for, Car for Carol Kalish and I think at first there was a sort of a certain resentment at editorial or a certain distrust, hmm. you know, about people in the sales department like Kurt Busiek and Peter David who thought they could write. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And, uh, but they eventually got their chances. But it's like, you know, Kurt, Kurt, when Kurt started, you know, like I said, no one was paying much attention to Peter when he started, took over Hulk. When Kurt was doing La Powell Man and Iron Fist, again, not pay many people paying attention, but then somehow he got the chance to do Marvels and hooked up with Alex Ross on this project, who was, you know, had no real predecessor yeah. in superhero comics. Right. Alex uh, doing this painted art, but Alex is as much uh, influenced by the people like Norman Rockwell from the great age of magazine illustration as he is by Jack Kirby and company from the world of comics. And he's able to blend these two. It's sort of like, in a way, what Neil Adams was doing at the end of the 60s. Neil Adams came out of comic strips and advertising art, and he had this sort of heightened photorealism in his artwork. It was, he was, you know, you could still see, you could see the influences of the great comic book artists there, but he was combining it with this sort of feel, this heightened real, look of reality. And, you know, by which I mean that these look like real people except better. <laughs> <laughs> and Alex, with his painted art, took this way, way further. And also, it's like, I think that in, 
terms of their choice of material, there's always been a certain um, element in Marvel readership. You know, we love the old stuff, uh, nostalgia for the days of Stan and Jack. But if you just try to, but if, say, in the 1990s, you try to do a comic book in the style of the 60s, it's not going to really work with a big audience. You might get a cult following. Uh, this is what I think happened with the MC2 line, it's like Spider-Girl. But, you know, the 60s books, that's when Stan and Jack and Ditko were being revolutionary and the material was fresh. If you're trying to do an imitation of that sort of material in the 90s, say, it's going to come off as retro, just imitating the past. It's not moving ahead. Kurt had a take, seeing the events, the classic events from the golden silver ages of Marvel through the eyes of a man on the street, this photojournalist. It was a different perspective and yet very true to the Marvel, Stan's Marvel tradition. And Alex was able to draw these, you know, restage these events from Kirby and Ditko comics, but do it in this heightened photorealistic painted style that nobody had seen before and was astonishingly beautiful. And what they did, it was this combination of something brand new with something very traditional and respectful of the past. And that proved to be a perfect combination. And they were perhaps the only, only the, these two coming together could, could have pulled this off probably because, you know, uh, the, you know, they have even the, even like the Marvel series that Kurt did later, later on with dif a different artist mm -hmm. wasn't quite up to this level. It was somehow mythic watching these events as if, uh, from the perspective of a, of a human life, like watching these godlike beings, and at the same time sort of down to a street level that you can identify with, this, this particular guy who lives and witness, bears witness to all of these miraculous, marvelous events. Um, so you've talked about it a bit here and there. The, the various lines and the various uh, even universes that Marvel was really, you know, a lot of things shooting off. We had... Um, the new universe and the, that line in the 80s, but what was, why, why were there so many various offshoots in the 90s? I think it's because that um, there was such a huge demand for material. And um, every, everything was selling so well, well, let's put out even more. It's a natural natural reaction for companies, and you had, um, and Marvel was very willing to experiment at that time. And so um, you had the Marvel 2099 line, which was re which were edited by Joey Cavallari, and which had versions of Marvel, of familiar Marvel characters set in, you know, over 100 years in the future, and had this sort of feel out of the cyberpunk fiction, the, that subgenre inaugurated by William Gibson. And so it was, um, so you have, uh, a, you have uh, a lot of use of sci cyberspace and futuristic versions of the internet, which is just starting to get going in the 90s mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. all. And, you know, and evil giant corporations mm -hmm. who are controlling society and this, this sort of dysfunctional future, and it's um, 
And I think that this was, you know, Mark Grunewald used to say that there were the real Marvel books and there were the fake Marvel books. And the real ones, by the real ones, he meant the ones that go on from decade to decade. And mm -hmm. the fake ones are the ones that might be hot for a while but sort of fade out. And Marvel 2099, it was really, much of it was really interesting, but it's sort of like a vision of the future. I don't know that the vision of the future would have, like now, would be exactly the right. same as the cyberpunk vision they have in the 90s. And I thought that a lot of, a lot of the characters were sort of, you know, like X-Men 299, there wasn't any standout character there. Again, Peter David, Spider-Man 2099, who was one of Marvel's first prominent Hispanic superheroes, um, was, uh, you know, he was a standout, but um, you also have the MC2 line. Now, this was, you know, intentionally a retro line. This was Tom DeFalco's idea. This was, um, the idea was that this would be an alternate future that was like, like a generation hence, so Spider-Girl is the daughter of Spy Peter Parker and Mary Jane who has inherited her dad's powers. And so you have the next generation of the Avengers and you have the Fantastic Five, which is sort of a combination of the, some members of the old FF and the young, younger members. And you have, and it's, um, and Tom was saying that he wanted the, you know, to do stories that were complete in one issue, he wanted, he wanted to get away from the decompressed style of storytelling that was beginning to arise, and it was um, it was a retro it was a retro line. And I again had a following, but I don't think you can really do do retro for the wide audience. You can't move backwards. You have to keep moving forwards. You also had now this is something that probably got lost in the crowd. You had Clive Barker, the fantasy mm -hmm. and horror writer, creating the Razor line of titles, four books, with titles like for Ecto Kid and Saint Sinner, a couple with supernatural fantasies, a couple with superhero books. But they just sort of got lost in the shuffle, yeah. and it's too bad. Yeah. And it's like, maybe he should have, you know, maybe he should have been trying these books now. Yeah. Or, maybe, <laughs> or maybe it was just too early in the market, because now you, you know, you think Marvel would put, you know, it's sort of like if Stephen King creates books for you, you have, you know, He's the other great fantasy horror writer of the, this period. Uh, it should have been more of a push. I don't know what happened there, but maybe it was also too separate from the Marvel Universe to succeed because there was so many other titles coming out from, from Marvel and from that DC and Image and so forth <coughs> at that point. And then you have the Malibu Ultraverse. <laughs> now, this was an independent company that arose in the 90s. And here's irony for you. So, Whereas artists were being pushed at Marvel, Malibu was pushing writers, writers and a couple yeah. of the writers were Steve Engelhahn and Steve Gerber, who had famously had their problems working with Marvel and with no doubt thought they were going to find all this independence working at Malibu. And what do you know, a few years later, Marvel buys Malibu. <laughs> and so the Malibu Ultraverse becomes another line of Marvel, Marvel comics, and there are even some crossovers. And Malibu did fairly well for a while. I mean, there was even a, a Nightman TV, live-action TV show based yep. on Steve Englehart's book. There was an ultra-forced animated TV show. But, you know, all these lines sort of faded at the end of the 90s. They went away, and apparently there's some sort of legal problems that prevent Marvel from reviving the, the Malibu Ultraverse. So, uh, And something I realized looking over these other lines is, you know, not the Ultraverse or the, or the or Barker's razor line, 
which makes it sound like the whole that Razor characters should be involved in it somehow. Why was it called Razor Line? I do not know. <laughs> but um, you know, one, of one of the things that struck me is in the 60s, of course, you have Stan and company creating new characters. But you also have a lot of new characters being created in the 70s, especially as Marvel is venturing into new genres, like martial arts and horror. Um, but in what you've got in the 90s are, you know, Marvel 2099, MC2, the MC2 line, these are new versions of existing characters. And sort of like, for one reason or another, maybe it's like creators, you know, now that the, we have the independent comics companies, they don't want to, like, create new characters work for hire at Marvel or DC. Or maybe it's just, or maybe it's that, you know, the people, the first generation, the, the Stan and Jack generation, you know, they were, they were create, creating new stuff, and a lot of people who've come into comics since then got in because they liked what Stan and Jack did and mm. wanted to do more of the same. So for whatever re reason, you know, now we're getting more, creativity is more towards variations on the old stuff rather than brand new stuff. But the attempts in the 90s didn't last. What happened was, what we'll talk about next time, which is when the ultra ultimate mm. universe comes around, because that one sticks around. So a little more than midway through the 90s, uh, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld come back into the picture with Heroes Reborn, where Iron Man, Captain America, the Avengers, and Fantastic Four basically get handed over from Marvel to exist in their own pocket universe with Rob and Jim directing things. It was a very drastic step, um, definitely one that got a lot of attention. What precipitated this? Why go to these guys and give them kind of such unprecedented control over these classic characters, and how do you think it ultimately played out? Well, here we're verging into the 90s as the dark times right. of Marvel. You know, just like the 50s were the dark times. Um, at this point, the boom, and I suppose we'll be talking about the boom a little bit later, but the, but the boom in sales, when things were selling mil millions of copies, had crashed. Things were, go things were going downhill, and Marvel needed to make money. And it was, and I guess there was sort of an increasing desperation. And keep in mind that Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld have been guys who had been doing these million these books that sold millions, and then they left for Image, and to found Image, and so I guess the idea was if we outsource some Marvel books, you know, we can't get these guys to come back and work work for hire for us. Now, little did they know, of course, that mm. these guys would, you know, eventually go work for hire for DC or Marvel. But not at that point, not at that point. Image was still, the image creators were still riding high in the 90s. So you weren't going to get them coming back to work on a work for hire basis at Mar Marvel. But if we outsource these books, because one, one of the reasons that the Lee and Life on the image guys left was because they wanted more creative control. So if we outsource these books to their studios and let them do whatever they want and they're drawing them, these books are going to sell huge. Well, as it turned out, the books did not sold big, but they did not sell, you know, these record-breaking numbers. But it was also, um, and if you ask me, 
these, this year of, was a year of bad stories <laughs> and bad art. And, you know, this, I, I don't really see any real movement to, oh, let's reprint all these stories. <laughs> or let's go back to the way the characters were being done then. Uh, it's, um, not, you, know, th you know, this is a, this is really a fad that went and came and went real fast. But of course, it was also a crushing blow to morale at Marvel because we're taking some, some of the central characters from, from the Marvel Universe and handing them to these guys. And, you, and the Marvel people can't control them anymore. Mm -hmm. And in the case of the editor Mark Grunewald, who was the Avengers editor, not only was he no longer writing Captain America, but he had lost most of the books he was editing. Mm. And it is said, fun fact, in terms of, and here I'm being ironic, mm. that when Mark passed away one weekend in the 90s, mm -hmm. very suddenly, of a heart attack, that the only comic in the ba his bag that he had brought from Marvel was a copy of the last issue of the Onslaught arc in which the FF and the Hulk and the Avengers disappear, seemingly dead, but in fact transported off to Lee and Liefeld land. So it was, um, even though the Heroes Reborn book sold well, the experiment only lasted a year and they came back. Uh, which is where they belong. You know, Marvel should be Marvel editorial should be controlling Marvel characters. But it was, uh, you know, this is this was a symptom of the bad times. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jim and Rob. I like a lot of your work, <laughs> but I did not like Heroes Reborn. And the most, and I'm afraid I thought the most innovative thing in it was that the Hulk was now being drawn so big that Rob realized that you can no longer believe that the pants stay on when he turns. <laughs> into the hand, so the Hulk was walking around naked, but heavily shadowed, I mean. <laughs> <it's> <laughs> um, do we have any other major points before we get to? No, I think that, yeah. I was going kind of to, you know, yeah, there must yeah. be other things on the list. There's, there's a bunch of things we can get to, but we, we're, we're running down on time. There's some stuff we'll cover next yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, what was because, because really it's sort of like, if you look at Marvel and, you know, I was realizing this when I was interviewed for the 75th anniversary special, because, you know, and w watching the, and I, I helped fact check it too. Um, <laughs> so I was watching the, I, got, I was watching a, a edited version before it went on the air, and realizing that they turned into this story with ups and downs, and, and the two down periods were the 50s, when it, at least at one point Stan was the only person left in the office, and and the 90s, and it's like, it's as if by the end of the. 20th century, talk about fin de siècle, you've got, uh, it's as if Marvel had to go to one of its lowest points in order to rebound for the tremendous success that it has had, both in the cogs, but even more so in film and television in the 21st century. I mean, it really is like, it's as if Stan wrote it, by gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good place to leave off. Is there anything else you wanted to No, cover? I think as long as we get to um, Joe Quesada, the Marvel yeah. Knights. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I thought we'd kick okay. off with that next time. You want to kick but, off with that but, next but, time? But, yeah, but I think, I think I should mention here, because that is an important point to make, that yeah. among the... Al this wasn't really an alternative line because it was dealing with the standard Marvel characters, the regular Marvel characters, but another thing that happened in the 90s was that there were these... Um, 
Marvel brought in these two guys, Joe Casada and Jimmy Palmiotti, who had been running their own little alternative company, Event Comics, and brought them in to edit some Marvel titles. And this was what they called the Marvel Knights with the K line. And they were doing new, new, new series with characters like Daredevil and Black Panther and Inhumans and Punisher, characters who were not sort of like big at the time at Marvel. And this is when Marvel was at its Park Avenue South location. And you know, most of us wa most of editorial was on the 10th floor, and there were business people on the 11th floor. And Joe, Joe and Jimmy were way up on like the 14th floor. And I remember once, once I was uh, helping make a documentary uh, about comics, and we were filming, and we ended up uh, filming in Joe and Jimmy's offices up there, and even went up to the roof to to do some shots because you could just walk right up to the <laughs> roof from there. And it's like uh, you know, so they were off on their own and really didn't have that much connection to the rest of Marvel editorial. They were doing some interesting books, but little did any of us know <laughs> what was going to happen in the next decade. And there's our cliffhanger. And that's <laughs> where we leave off. Perfect. Peter, we want to thank you for coming on with us as always, mm -hmm. and we will have you back to wrap up this particular series of podcasts. But until then, this is Marvel, your universe.